This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Exodus. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord." When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is God's word. Please be seated. Thanks, Noah David. Again, good morning. Uh, I'm Ted Sin, I'm pastor of New City, and I'm glad that you're here. And uh, during our sermon and teaching time, uh, when I've been preaching, we've been working our way uh, through Exodus. And this morning, we finally get into the chapter, chapter 7, um, which uh, begins the most famous and most well-known section of Exodus, uh, the Ten Plagues. So the turning of the Nile's water into blood, the so-called first plague is the passage just after our text uh, that we're going to look at this morning. Uh, The phrase 10 plagues is the traditional way and and probably an okay way, uh, but not the most biblical way uh, to label all that happens in Egypt from chapter 7 to chapter 13. As you read through that section of Exodus, you're going to see the English word plague uh, four times if you use the same translation as me, but uh, those four times come from three different Hebrew words, words that are synonymous with one another. They all mean to afflict and to, to uh, a pestilence, uh, to wound, uh, to smite, to strike, uh, to injure. And so plague is a fine English translation, uh, but in order to really summarize what God is doing in chapters 7 through 13, it's more biblical and it's more accurate to think of all that happens as 11 signs or 11 wonders. When the Bible actually summarizes what God is up to in this section of Scripture, this most famous section in Exodus, uh, repeatedly God calls them His signs and wonders. Verse 3, I will multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Chapter 10, Yahweh will summarize the seven plagues that have happened so far, and He says these are signs of His. In chapter 11, the first nine plagues are summarized this way. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And so what's the point? 
10 plagues. It's a label. It's fine and it's true to a point, but I want you to think of 11 signs as better. If we're thinking of them as 10 plagues, then this morning is just the text that comes before them. But if we see them as 11 signs, our text this morning is not the story before the 10 plagues. And it's not simply the first sign. I want to show you this morning that that our text, specifically verses 8 through 13, is the first and foundational sign of all that follows. So in chapter 7, 1 through 7, these 11 signs are introduced. In verses 8 through 13, we have this first foundational sign. So let me ask you a question. What are the 10 plagues or the 11 signs? What are they all about? What's God's purpose in the 10 plagues? Based on what you already know, whether it's from a movie or Sunday school or reading it yourself, think about it. What's the purpose? What's the point of the bloody Nile, the festering boils, the obnoxious gnats, the three-day darkness? Verses 3 to 5 in our text, if you look there with me, it gives the biblical introduction to the 11 signs. It tells us what God is up to. In verse 4, it says that God lays his hand on Egypt to number 1, bring the children of Israel out of the land, and number two, bring great acts of judgment on Egypt. Verse five, two things again, judgment and deliverance. God is going to stretch out his hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. And so over the next three weeks, I want to take one half of what's happening in the plagues, the great acts of judgment where God is coming in judgment. And I want to actually cover that great judgment on the three levels that persistently show up, the three layers that we're going to see in, verse, in chapters 7 through 13 over and over and over. This is what's going on in the judgment. God in the ten plagues is not just judging Pharaoh and the Egyptians for their sin. He's not just judging and defeating the Egyptian pantheon or the idols that were created by the Egyptians. We'll talk about that next week. But first and foundational, Yahweh is judging the gods of Egypt. So this morning, spiritual war in the Exodus, spiritual war in the 21st century, spiritual, which by the way is a rabbit trail. I'm just going to go and tell you right now. I can't really justify going there. It's just a rabbit trail. Spiritual war in the advent, which is actually the ultimate point of Exodus chapter 7 through 13. Okay, so first, spiritual war in the Exodus. Are you ready? Quite simply, verses 8 through 13, this strange story about these serpents reveals to us that at a very deep level, a level hidden from the naked eye, the Exodus and the ten plagues are not ultimately about Pharaoh and Moses. It's not ultimately about Pharaoh and Yahweh. It's ultimately about Pharaoh, or excuse me, Yahweh and the gods of Egypt. In verses 1 and 2, if you look there, God again recommissions Moses and Aaron as his human deliverers. He says, Aaron is his prophet. And then in verse 6, finally, if you've been with us over the last few months, Moses and Aaron do just as the Lord commanded them. We'll talk about that in future weeks. God tells Moses to tell Aaron to tell Pharaoh that Yahweh wants the Israelites released. And then if you look at verse 9, the Lord knows what Pharaoh's response is going to be. The prophets of Yahweh will enter the courts of Pharaoh, and they're going to demand the release of the Israelites based on Yahweh's word and Yahweh's command. Did something just happen there? Spiritual war. I'll just keep going. 
Uh, Pharaoh is going to say, prove yourselves by working a miracle. It's the same word as wonders in verse 3. In other words, Pharaoh is saying, if you're going to say that you represent a deity, deity, I want to see a supernatural sign to prove it. Prove it. Don't just use Yahweh's name. Prove it. And so the Lord tells Moses to tell Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. It's just a word that can mean serpent. It can also mean dragon, crocodile, sea monster, something fierce. And in verse 10, everything happens according to the Lord's prediction and the Lord's plan. And then, verse 11, Pharaoh is not convinced. He summons the wise men. It's a a general word for being in the know, and you have to figure out in the context what it means. In Genesis 41, uh, the men, the wise men in Genesis 41 are like the wise men here. They're in the know in regards to spiritual matters, dreams and visions and signs. Pharaoh also summons the sorcerers, those who practice black arts and witchcraft and wizardry. In 2 Chronicles 33, uh, sorcery is mentioned as part of the long list of evil attributed to King Manasseh. A list that includes wizardry, fortune-telling, child-burning on altars built to, quote, all the hosts of heaven. And they, the wise men and the sorcerers, are called the magicians of Egypt. And they did the same by their secret arts or their mysterious arts. Verse 12, for each man, dozens of them, most likely, each man cast down his staff and they became serpents. And so if we're tempted to think that this magic is the magic of an illusionist, not only does the text say that their staffs became serpents, the word for being, but at the end of verse 12, it says Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. If they had hidden their staffs and produced serpents, the text would say that Aaron's staff swallowed up their serpents. Even Pharaoh knows that this war with Yahweh is spiritual at its core. He doesn't ask Moses and Aaron to delineate their human army and what kind of attack they could possibly bring on him. He asks them for a sign. He doesn't summon his military generals. He summons his sorcerers and conjurers. And the spiritual war thread that uh, starts here in this first sign is going to continue on into the plague narrative. It's not the first time these magicians are going to show up. In the first plague, the second sign, God turns the Nile waters into blood. We read in chapter 7, verse 22, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. In the second, second plague, the third sign, God plagues Egypt with frogs. And we read in chapter 8, verse 7, but the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs coming up onto the land of Egypt. In the third sign, uh, excuse me, the fourth sign, the third plague, God turns the dust of the earth into gnats. And we finally read in chapter 8, verse 18, the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. You see, the point of the sign, what it indicated, had finally come true. The magicians and the evil spirits have some supernatural power, a power that would have consumed Moses and Aaron apart from God. But with God there... Yahweh claims the victory, but Aaron's staff swallowed, engulfed, consumed the sorcerer's staffs. 
By the time the sixth plague rolls around, the plague of boils, the sign that has um, uh, the, the sign has been completely fulfilled. The sign of the serpent swallowing the other serpents is completely fulfilled by the sixth plague. And we read this, chapter nine, verse eleven. And the magicians could not stand before Pharaoh because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all uh, upon the magicians, excuse me, and all the Egyptians. So the magicians and the evil spirits could bring harm on the people. They could bring more blood and they could bring more frogs, but they could not stop a plague from happening. And while they were more powerful than humans, they were quite powerless compared to Yahweh. So the first and foundational uh, sign in regard to the judgments is this. The ten plagues are about defeating the actual gods of Egypt. Now, honestly... How many of us said spiritual war when I asked earlier, what is this all about? I was like, what's the boils? What's the Nile? What's the hail? What's that all about? Some of us said, heck, if I know, it's the craziest thing I've ever read. Some of us said it's obviously judgment on Pharaoh for being so cruel, and that's true. We're going to talk about that in a couple weeks, Lord willing. And some said it's a polemic. It's an argument against the idols of the Egyptian culture. If you know anything about Egyptian history, or if you know anything, if you've been a student of the Ten Plagues, you know that God's going to actually attack um, the, 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 the idols that the Egyptian culture worshipped, like the Nile and the sun and frogs and other things. We'll talk about that next week, actually. Uh, but I don't think many of us said, well, first and foundationally, it's spiritual war. It's God dealing with false gods and evil spirits in Egypt. But in summarizing the 10th plague, the climactic plague, the climactic sign, God says this. He says, I'm doing two things in chapter 12, verse 12. I'm striking the firstborn of man and beast. That's judgment on the humans for sin. And he is executing judgments on all the gods of Egypt. Did you read Jude? New Testament book, little one-chapter book in CBR this week, please start reading CBR. I'm not going to stop referencing it. Listen to Jude chapter 1, verse 5 and following. I could not have scripted this. Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt and afterward destroyed those who did not believe, deliverance and judgment. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Spiritual war. Friends, listen, there are evil spirits who were created as spirits with authority to serve God, who didn't want to stay in submission to God. They left their proper dwelling, and these evil spirits have aligned themselves with Satan and the angels who Jesus defeated at the Exodus are kept in eternal chains under under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. They're not just gods in the imaginations of the Hebrews. They're not just gods in the imaginations of the Egyptians. They existed outside the Egyptians' mind more powerful than the humans, but less powerful than God. Spiritual war in the Exodus, the first and foundational sign. So, a lengthy transition into my second point, spiritual war in the 21st century. However you understand the 10 plagues or the 11 signs, the first sign tells us that in some measure and at some level, the 10 plagues In them, God is striking, judging, and defeating the false gods of Egypt. 
Further, that in some measure and at some level, the slavery and the pain and the oppression experienced by the Israelites, delineated now for six chapters, can at some level be attributed to these invisible forces or gods or spirits or beings. They align themselves at some point against God with Satan and in the great cosmic battle that is a storyline of Scripture, if not the storyline of Scripture, they fight against God. And in aligning themselves in the battle against God, these beings, these gods, these spirits, they pick on and torture and oppress and make life miserable for God's people. In an effort to hurt God, they hurt his people. In an effort to try and have God's people turn against God and not worship God, think Job, they attack not God, but God's people. They attack God by attacking his people. So a question for us this morning is this. Is there still, on a deeper level, a higher level, an unseen level, a battle raging between God and the gods, between Jesus and his angel, angels and, and Satan and his angels? And if so, how does it impact us? Are we in danger? Are we under attack? Does Satan still attack the followers of God in his war against God? And if he does, would it behoove us to be aware or more aware of his schemes in that battle? The answer is yes, 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 yes. There is still a battle raging at an unseen level that impacts us, that believers are part of, whether they realize it or not. Paul famously said in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In 1 Peter 5, we are told that, the, that our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. In the New Testament writers, Paul in particular, radically believes that we have to understand the schemes of the devil to be able to fight. And so Paul, over and over and over, and John and others are going to tell us what the schemes of Satan are as he fights God and as we're, in some measure, fought against as well. And so our second point is a rabbit trail. Spiritual war in the 21st century. It's a rabbit trail because it's not a point of the passage in Exodus 7. The, the primary point of the passage in Exodus 7 is that God wins, period. We'll get back to that in a second. But for now, I want to follow this rabbit trail. I want to ask the question, how, how does Satan attack us? How does he try to bring, bring pain and loss and defeat into our lives? How does he attack us in hopes that we will turn against God now? And so as I thought about it this week, there are various schemes that he has. I thought I would offer four. And my goal here is awareness. First, Satan and his lackeys are present when we're tempted to sin particularly when we're tempted to sin in regards to self-control. Now, I know that the Bible says that we're supposed to pray that God will not lead us into temptation. I know the Bible says that in James that we are uh, tempted when we are lured and enticed uh, by the fleshly desires that are within us, and that God does not tempt and he is not tempted. And I know that the Bible says that temptation must come, but woe to the one speaking of humans through whom the temptation comes. But the Bible also says that Satan 
is a tempter. And what role does, she, does Satan show up first in the Bible? He's there to tempt Adam and Eve. He's called the tempter in 1 Thessalonians 3, 5 and in Matthew 4, 3. And in particular, I think Satan is known as the tempter when we're trying to decide whether we're going to do something we know to be right or we know to be wrong. We think, I'm just sitting here thinking about this. Am I going to pick what I know to be right or I know to be wrong? Satan is there. He tempts, he whispers, he lies. He says, pick the wrong. It's more fun. It's short-term gain. There is no long-term pain. He directly disagrees with God and his scriptures. When we're sitting there thinking of going online, thinking of buying that pair of shoes we don't need, thinking of gossiping and slandering a friend, thinking of taking that relationship in the workplace to an inappropriate level, it's not just us noodling. Satan's there. He's whispering. He's lying. He's trying to devour. He is hoping to hurt you. Satan is a tempter. Second, Satan or demons aligned with him are present in our idolatry. Again, we're just asking the question, how does Satan battle now? What is, if you will, what is he behind, if you will, in ways that we don't consider? I don't know the actual connection between the actual gods of Egypt, chapter 12, verse 12, and the Egyptian pantheon that we're going to look at next week. I don't know the actual connection, if it's a one-to-one correlation, or if there's some sort of correlation, or if it's no, there's just no connection at all. But, but I know this, that Paul often alludes the, to a connection between idols and demons. And he says in 1 Corinthians 10 that when we make sacrifices to idols, we make sacrifices to demons. And then Paul says very lovingly, I do not want you to be participants with demons. Isn't that nice? Me either, as it turns out. So in, in Paul's day and age, like many parts of the world today, actual physical idols and images were worshipped and bowed down to and sacrificed. But in our context, the 21st century in America, we're dominated by secular atheism. But idolatry is still rampant, just not physically represented by images. In Romans 1, Paul says that when we take any created thing and we worship it and give our lives to it, it's an idol. It could be money or success or sex or performance or a variety of things. Whatever the organizing reality of our lives is, it could be a relationship, it could be a goal, it could be an image or a reputation, whatever good thing that we make into an ultimate thing is an idol. And we sacrifice ourselves to it. And Paul says we're making sacrifice to demons. How does Satan attack us, enslave us, decrease the worship of God? One way, idolatry. Making that created thing an ultimate. I, I kind of just think, well, I got control issues. Or I'm a perfectionist. Or I enjoy comfort. I enjoy vacation just a little too much. I obsess a little bit too much on my career or my hobbies or my figure, financial or otherwise. And Paul says that sacrifices we make in pursuit of our idols are sacrifices to demons. It's not neutral. It's not a little bit bad. It's spiritual. Third, Satan or unclean spirits are behind, if you will, or source, if you will, false teaching. In 1 John 4, the Apostle John teaches that behind, if you will, false teaching is demonic activity. 
John also says that the sourcing for true teaching is the Holy Spirit or the, the Holy Spirit's spirits, 1 John 4, 2. John commands us to test the spirits. He says, consider the teaching. Consider the teacher. He says, this is how you can run a test. If the teaching is from the Holy Ghost and not from Antichrist, the teacher will believe that Jesus took on skin and that he's God. But if the incarnation of Jesus is not part or the foundational part of a teacher's worldview and understanding of reality, their philosophy, if you will, is sourced by Antichrist. That's what John says. We saw in Friday in CBR in Revelation 2, Revelation 2, verse 2, John is the author giving the words of Jesus. Jesus says affirmingly, I know that you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. What was false? I don't know. But they didn't teach, and they didn't line everything up under the truth that Jesus was God, that Jesus was man, and that at his, at his coming, that his advent is what everything else has to align under in order for it to be true. Another scheme that Satan uses in warfare against us is any teacher, philosopher, thinker, culture maker, opinion setter who does not orient their teaching around Jesus. From college professors to TV personalities to radio talk show hosts. Just trying to get us to be aware. Here's the irony or the reality. Does the college professor, does he, listen, Does he know that he is? Or does she intend to be part of the devouring strategy of Satan? No. In fact, most likely, the professor is a humanist that doesn't even believe in the supernatural. But I was a college pastor, a student pastor for years. I was that longer than I've been a church planter. I can tell you, one of Satan's primary schemes in destroying 18-year-olds is this. Give them a sexy, smart, funny college professor who tells them that there is no supernatural. He tells them that religion is the crutch of the weak and the weapon of the strong. And the 18-year-old is more motivated. They say they're motivated by their intellectual pursuits, but they're more motivated by their sex drive and their raging desire for pleasure. And they, they reason, it's just my parents' religion that's kept me from eating, drinking, and being married. And in the deadly deception of the evil one, the professor who doesn't believe in the supernatural is a supernatural scheme in devouring students. Fourth, Satan is behind and aligns the ways of the world to do battle with Christians. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience when we follow or walk in the ways of the world. In other words... If the way we live, our life, is not radically different from our unbelieving neighbor, we're following the scheme of Satan. Paul says in Romans 12, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind according to God's will and way. In deciding on housing, education, career, marriage, the handling of money, we will, by scheme of Satan, default into worldly living and thinking and simply merge with the world. And Paul says in Ephesians 2, when we do that, we're following the prince of the power of the air and he leads to death. Now, 
I don't have time to do a bunch of applications in terms of solution to Satan's schemes. The fact of the matter was this. My real goal here was to raise your awareness and scare you. To be totally, well, sober is the word the Bible uses. I wanted to remind us of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. What is seen is transient. What is unseen is eternal. I could have preached an entire sermon. I could have preached a sermon on a solution for all of those schemes I just gave you. Okay, regarding temptation, God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. God will always provide an out and an escape. God's spirit now lives in us. He's given us a new heart and a new spirit. At the core of who we are, we want him and his ways more than we want Satan and his ways. In regards to idolatry, the solution is to worship God more, to look at the cross of Jesus more often and see what he's done for us and worship him. In order to take our hands off of our money and our pleasure and our comfort, in order to see decrease in false worship, we have to passionately increase genuine worship of the one who is worthy and that is Jesus. In regards to false teaching, obviously the solution to false teaching is true teaching. Teaching that is centered on and around and founded upon and lined up with Jesus. Paul says in Ephesians 4, God does not want believers to be tossed to and fro by every wave of false doctrine. God does not want believers carried about by every wind of doctrine. And Paul says God gives pastor teachers to the church to remedy against false teaching. The solution for false teaching? Know the Bible. Read it yourself. Sit under the teaching of God's word whenever you can. It's not enough to simply be aware that the college professor's teaching uh, is a scheme of Satan if it's not lined up with Jesus. But we also have to proactively pursue the true teaching, which is Jesus and his word. In regards to the ways of the world, God says build an alternate community. He says, build new patterns. Live in community where you do what other believers do, and that becomes natural as opposed to what unbelievers do around you. He calls us into an alien life in the city with other believers. He says, create a kingdom community that the city will see and admire and want to be a part of. New patterns, rather old patterns, of the Bible that the covenant community can live out in honoring to God. But again, the main application point that I want to end on, now I'm going actually back to Exodus 7, uh, it's the application point we're going to sing two songs about. It's the victory of God in the advent of Jesus. We're going to sing in a minute, our God is greater, our God is stronger, our God is higher than any other, that there's no one no God like our God. The Bible talks in language like this. It doesn't say there's no God besides God. It just says there's no God that can rival our God. We're going to sing to a king who is coming to reign. Uh, We're going to sing that Satan is vanquished and Jesus is king. And the main point of application today, like the minor point is awareness. The main point is celebration. God wins. God wins wins finally and quickly spiritual war in the advent okay our, our text in exodus it's a sign of what's going to happen in the 10 plagues and what happens in exodus and in the 10 plagues is ultimately fulfilled in jesus and in his advent advent again just means coming it means arrival it means jesus came first 
as a baby boy. He showed up in skin. I think a level or an aspect that we don't think often enough about in Jesus' life is the level of spiritual war between Jesus and Satan. We tend to think too narrowly, particularly as Presbyterians. We tend to focus entirely on Jesus' perfect life for us, his substitutionary death on our behalf. And all of that is absolutely true. But at the same time, Jesus' incarnation decisively and definitively defeated evil. In the very first chapter of Mark's gospel, no stories about Jesus as a little baby, no stories of him as a little child. Jesus is baptized, he's driven into the wilderness, 40 days of fasting, and then Satan shows up. And Satan tempts Jesus to self-gratify, to self-promote, to self-protect. And Satan tempts Jesus to worship him. Satan tempts Jesus to get off of his course, off of his way. Jesus doesn't give in. He didn't fall. He won that battle as part of the war. Throughout the gospel narratives, we see Jesus convincing power over evil spirits and demons. We see him, in essence, binding the strong man. Whenever Jesus encountered someone who was demonized, whether they were mute or experiencing seizures or in mental agony, when Jesus encountered those who were out of control, when he, when he encountered those who couldn't control themselves and couldn't be controlled by the community, he helped them. Every time, every battle, Jesus, by the word of his mouth, cast out the demon. The spirit that would have destroyed the human apart from Christ is rendered powerless in the presence of Christ. Every battle along the way was a victory for Jesus. Jesus' life is the swallowing up of death. It's the conquering of evil. But the greatest display of the power of Jesus, when Jesus says in his own words that he is in his hour of glory, when his glory is most magnificently shown, The greatest display of Jesus' power is his apparent weakness on the cross. It's his death. Think about it. After living a perfect life, after never falling to temptation, at the end of his life, having complete and utter control of Satan, Jesus has his hands tied to the cross, and he makes himself defenseless and vulnerable. Vulnerable to the attacks and the shame and the scorn and the fiery darts of evil. The land was dark from noon to three. All the gospel writers tell us that. God had left the scene. His light and his orderly sovereign control of creation had gone with him. Satan and his minions and the prince of darkness are having their way with Jesus. They're pummeling him. Think about it. Jesus has conquered Satan, defeated Satan, humiliated Satan, cast Satan and his minions into pigs and water and the like. And now on the cross... Satan is getting his paybacks. He thinks he's getting even. Satan doesn't realize that in his death, Jesus will swallow up death. It's the death of death and the death of Jesus. What did it say in Revelation 1 this week in CBR? Jesus says, I am the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus is saying, I'm the proud new owner of hell. A little odd. In other words, the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. Jesus is saying not just that the church marches on the gates of hell, but from the inside out, believers are freed, they're let loose, they're given life, 
they're taken out of the dominion of darkness. Jesus did not burst through the gates of hell outside in. He burst through the gates of hell inside out. My pastor in Lakeland would often talk about the great judo throw of the gospel. The great judo throw of the gospel. In judo, uh, one of the primary tactics is this. I think it's the primary tactic, but since I've never done it, and some of you probably have, I'll say one of the primary tactics. It's to use your opponent's momentum against them. When the opponent comes at you to strike you, you do not try and stop their momentum. You take their momentum and their aggression and you push them farther than they wanted to go. You throw them using their own momentum. Jesus, on the cross, took Satan and his attack against him, his attempt to bring death to him. He took all of that vicious forward momentum and he took Satan farther than Satan wanted to go. At the end of his life, Jesus could have just cast Satan away forever. His life was beautiful, his power was immense, but in order to have you and me forever, he died in our place, purchased the keys of Hades, and burst open the gates from the inside out. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Death is swallowed up in victory. In order to swallow up death in victory and not lose us, Jesus for a time was swallowed up in our place. It's to this king we sing. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your incredible love, your unbelievable protection, your defense, a mighty fortress that you are. We thank you that you protect us and defend us and subdue us. We thank you that you defeat your enemy and ours, and a lot of the time we're completely unaware. We thank you that your salvation of us is not dependent upon us, but your salvation is dependent upon your promises. We thank you that not only do you satisfy the Father's wrath with your blood on the cross, but you defeat evil and death. We thank you for entering death and bringing death to death in your own death. Help us to figure out what that means and to celebrate it and to glorify you in it. Jesus, would you make us more aware? Would you give us a greater awareness of all that is going on in our life and in our world? Would you help us to understand the schemes of Satan that we might enjoy uh, you more fully through obedience, that we might be better witnesses of your gospel and your truth, uh, that we might see Satan's oppression of others and hate it and work against it and do all we can to free them. In your name we pray, Jesus.